The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. Our scripture text this morning is Acts chapter 2. So let me give you just a few seconds to turn there in your Bible or on your device. Acts chapter 2 from verse 22 to verse 32. Follow along with me here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. That's our text this morning. That's a lot of words, right? I just read for like three minutes. So this is going to be, you know, when I went through my sermon last night, it's like an hour. <laughs> I hope I don't go that long this morning. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. My name is Ming Jin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the downtown campus. And, man, I, I wanted to be 10 feet tall this morning so that when I lifted my hands, I could be that much closer to God in worship. I just, I love that. For those of you that are tuning in around the world, wherever you are, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for tuning in with us. May God meet you wherever you are right now. So here we are in the middle of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Pastor Jason, last week, I think he did this out of love for me. He said, we're going to rightly divide the Word of God the, the way you divide a, a raw chicken. Remember that? You cut along the natural divisions. Um, and Jason helped us to understand Peter's sermon has three claims, and each claim is supported by an Old Testament passage. Last week, anyone remember Peter's claim? They're not drunk. It's the Spirit of God being poured out, just like it says in Joel chapter 2. Next week, Pastor Kenny is going to understand or help us understand the third claim, which is that the pouring out of the Spirit is proof of the ascension 
of Jesus, as first told in Psalm 110. So if you want to get ready for next week, you can read and study Psalm 110 to be ready for that. It's my job this week to help us look at the middle of Peter's sermon. And this is his second claim. Peter's claim this week, I'm going to read it. The extraordinary events of Pentecost, which includes the pouring out of God's Spirit, as we saw, can only be understood through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a delight, just a real delight, to have poured into this word uh, for these past two weeks and to have an opportunity now to open the word, look at it, learn from it, and worship you together. So it is not me that we need to hear from this morning. It is you. It is not the presence of this lump of flesh behind this block of wood that we need. It is the Spirit of God that we need. So come, be with us. Illuminate our eyes so we can see Jesus in the text. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is uh, what we're going to do this morning. Three steps. Uh, first, I want to transport all of us right here back to Jerusalem at the Pentecost. So my goal is so that you can enjoy Peter's sermon firsthand. Next, we're going to look at exactly what Peter has taught in this portion of his sermon. And I hope that we're going to come away with a lens. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to hold that lens up and we're going to look at some other stuff to see what we can see. Okay? You ready? All right. So when my kids uh, were young, and they're a lot bigger now, we used to watch the, the Magic School Bus. You guys remember that show? Um, Ms. Frizzle was an elementary school teacher, and she had a Magic School Bus. And with that bus, she could take her students anywhere in space and in time. She knew, for example, that the best way for her students to understand uh, maybe the cardiovascular system in the body is to shrink them down to the size of a blood cell, to go into a vein and all the chambers of the heart and feel the rush of being shot out through an artery and then get them back before the end of the day. So welcome to our magic school bus this morning. Uh, today I'm Pastor Frizzle Jin, uh, which is also my Star Wars name. Um, and we are going on a trip to Peter's Pentecost sermon in Jerusalem. So we weren't, you know, in the budget this year, we weren't able to afford a real magic school bus. Um, but here we have our sanctuary. And I want us to go there to get our mindset into the mindset of Peter's Pentecost audience so we can hear what they heard. And it's absolutely stunning. So I, I just, as, as I did that, as I read the text, as I put myself into the mindset and, and asked the questions, who are these people that are listening? And how is this news landing on them? I thought, let's do that together. Okay, so where do we start? Uh, we have to back up. So look at your text. In fact, I want to ask you, keep your text open um, because we're, we're studying the Word of God together. So keep it open. Look down at chapter 2, verse 5. Luke tells us about our audience. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. Devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, this is the first thing that got me. When I read, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, my first reaction was, well, duh, right? There were, of course, that's where all the Jews were dwelling. But look at this, it says, devout men from every nation under heaven. I always imagined that all the Jews of the world always lived in Jerusalem, but that's not the case. There were Jews and people who were not ethnically Jewish, but had converted to Judaism. In verse 11, they're called proselytes, you can look down at that, who lived in many nations of the earth. And during Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, they made a trek a travel to celebrate Pentecost together. Traveling for a religious holiday, you might say. Um, And let's remind ourselves for a moment, why did a multitude gather together here? Why are, is there, and how many people are there? So Luke 5, or excuse me, Luke says in verse 5, Acts chapter chapter 2, verse 5, at this sound, the multitude came together. What sound? The super loud sound from verse 2. Luke describes it as a mighty rushing wind that came from heaven. How loud was the sound? It was loud enough to gather not just a few hundred people, but a few thousand. At least, we know, at least 3,000 people. Because that's how many were saved right after this sermon. So here's an image to help you imagine the outburst of sound and that gathered crowd. Remember, um, that's, I hope you can see it here, the scene in Aladdin, when Aladdin comes into Agrabah as Prince Ali. Boop, 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 boop. Bump, bump, right? And then Abu kicks the door, and everyone's like, oh! So this big crowd. Well, the, the, this sound is louder than that sound. Okay, this sound was louder than that sound. So here we have Jews from all over the world. They've traveled from afar to celebrate Pentecost together in the epicenter of the Jewish world, Jerusalem. Now, what do these people know and think about Jesus? During the course of his ministry, Jesus had grown famous. We read in the Gospels that Jesus drew a crowd wherever he went. Word traveled all over about him. So when he died, it was big news. If Twitter was around back then, which I'm glad it wasn't, uh, the hashtag may have been uh, hashtag crucify him or hashtag couldn't save himself. The death of Jesus was viral. Now, am I just making that up? Uh, how can I prove that from the Bible? So we actually have an interesting account that gives us an idea of the mindset of the people in Jerusalem around the time of Jesus' crucifixion. If you go to Luke chapter 24, same author, the book before, right? We're studying Acts of Luke Acts. We have a story about two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. You guys know this story. It's Cleopas and Simon Peter, and they ran into a mysterious stranger. They don't know who this stranger is. For those of you that don't know this story, it's Jesus resurrected, but they don't know that just yet. So they're talking, and the stranger's listening, and the stranger says to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? So how did Cleopas reply? He says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem 
and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? You see, the death of Jesus, the miracle worker, attested to people by wonders and signs, uh, died. The man that could save other people couldn't save himself. That is front page news. So, of course, Jesus replies with the, the greatest troll of all time. What things? What things happened? So Cleopas, he says this. Now, listen to this. This is going to give you an idea. Remember, we're on the magic school bus in Jerusalem to try to understand what the audience of Peter was like. The things concerning Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now it's the third day. Kind of like we're giving up hope today because this is the day he was supposed to rise from the grave. So this narrative gives us an idea of what, according to Cleopas, everyone who was visiting Jerusalem had been thinking about Jesus after his crucifixion. But we're all the way in Acts 2, right? Our passage and this sermon is taking place after the resurrection, even after his ascension. In fact, Jesus, according to Paul in this letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, he had appeared to over 500 people in his resurrected state. So what does this gathering of Jews from around the world think about Jesus in, in, during the sermon? We also know from Matthew 28, you don't need to turn there, but this is what it says. The chief priests had paid Roman soldiers, quote, a large sum of money to do what? To spread a rumor. What's the rumor? Right here. Quote, his disciples came by night and stole him away. So tell everyone you fell asleep. And when you fell asleep, the disciples came and stole his body. What was the result of that lie that was paid to be promoted? Quote, the story was widely spread among the Jews. So there are two accounts floating around. Maybe he rose from the dead. Maybe he's rotting in someone's basement. Who knows what to believe? And what about the ascension? Um, who saw the ascension? Wouldn't it be pretty good proof that Jesus was alive if you saw him shooting up into the sky? Like you'd say, well, he's not stolen because there he is right there. Well, we learn in Luke chapter 24, if you're still there, you can look, verse 50, that Jesus actually led his disciples out of Jerusalem to Bethany. That is, down the Kidron Valley, across on the Jericho Road, into Bethany, about, I think, a, a day's walk. And he was carried up in heaven from there, not in Jerusalem. So where does that leave the Jews? We know from Cleopas what they thought about Jesus upon his death. We had hoped, but now it's the third day. His resurrection was witnessed mainly 
by his disciples. His ascension was also witnessed mainly by his disciples and outside of Jerusalem. So here we are. This is the mindset now. What I've tried to do is try to crawl our minds into the audience's mind. I think, I think we're there. Jesus' followers and perhaps a few onlookers had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But maybe he's dead in a basement somewhere because he was stolen. But here we are. Now we're gathered together. The whole audience got together. And, and there's bewilderment. That's what Acts 2 says. They were bewildered. What in the world is that loud sound? Why do we hear our native language being spoken by these Galileans? Right? If you have traveled from Egypt or Rome or Asia, and then you hear your own language being spoken by these people, you, you got to wonder, something different is going on. And what is it? What is the explanation? Are we truly witnessing, as Jason taught us last week, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy right now? So Peter's about to blow everyone's mind with an amazing claim, recognizing that the Jews are not able to understand what's happening. They're not able to see properly how God is fulfilling Joel's prophecy. He's going to craft a lens for his people. Now, what's a lens? I actually went on YouTube to kind of figure it out a little bit. A lens is just a plastic disc. It's kind of, it's convex on one side, um, kind of flat on the other. But if you take that disc and you grind it very carefully, just so, you can use it to focus light in a new way so that the disc becomes a lens and that lens is a tool for interpretation a tool for understanding, a tool to help you see properly. Peter begins the disc grinding like this. Um, he takes what they know, right, this disc, something about Jesus. It's not rightly shaped. It's, it's confused. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he ascended. So, and he's going to start grinding this disc, this idea of who is Jesus to help them understand. So look down at Acts 2.22. And this is how Peter begins. Right after he's done talking about Joel, he dives into the next point. Jesus of Nazareth. That's how he begins. So important. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you know. The lens blank, the plastic disc is in their pocket. They, they have that idea. But don't move too fast, okay? So we're still on the magic school bus together. Put yourself in the place of a Jew from Asia, Egypt, Rome. You've come to celebrate Pentecost. Then you hear a really loud sound. Boop, 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 boop. Thousands gather. You go over. The preacher is preaching from the scripture. Okay, that's good. Orthodox. Just stick to the scriptures, right? But now he's breaking new ground. He's introducing something new. What in the world does... Jesus couldn't save himself of Nazareth have to do with this. After all, he died last month. That's old news. His story is already over. Yet it is this particular category. What do you think about Jesus? 
that Peter knows this is the disc to grind. This is the place that you need to have your understanding refined. So Peter begins with accepted facts. Jesus was attested by God to you. He did through things through him as you yourselves know. And this concurs with what Cleopas said to Jesus on the road to Emmaus, right? They all knew that he was a man who was a mighty prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So everyone could agree on that much. So Peter goes on. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What? This is news. This is new news. That is brand new information. Okay, this is new news. Uh, what does he mean? Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was killed by the Jewish leaders, just like Cleopas said. He was stupidly tricked by his own friend Judas. So we're, we're going to see how Peter's going to defend this in just a minute. But first, Peter goes on to declare something even more startling. And this, brothers and sisters, is wonderful, wonderful news. From Acts 2, this refrain, it rings throughout history. And it will ring forever. And listen to this. God raised him up. Man, that's some new, new, new news. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible. It was not possible for him to be held by it. There's something I want you to really feel keenly this morning in your heart. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. This sermon is not like a sermon that Peter had memorized and printed out and like, it's not like his Easter sermon that he preaches every year. At this moment, he is talking to a bewildered crowd of Jews, and he's telling them, 47 days ago, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. His testimony, Peter's testimony about Jesus, runs directly against the rumors that Jesus' body was missing because it was stolen by his disciples. So, we have a choice now. Who are we going to believe? Will we believe the authorities? Since they probably know because they're the authorities and they were there. They even admitted that they did something wrong. They fell asleep. So it's, it sounds pretty plausible, Right? Because no one rises from the dead except for Lazarus, who Jesus rose, raised from the dead, and the girl. Or are we going to believe this peculiar group of Galileans who are clearly displaying a supernatural demonstration of God's power right in front of our eyes, in frente de nuestras caras, right? All these languages. Do you know what, Bethlehem? That question, did Jesus rise from the grave, actually, really, 
is still before us today. What are you going to believe? That's such an important question for you. God is authenticating Peter's testimony with the wonders and signs that Joel prophesied and that thousands of people witnessed at Pentecost. But signs and wonders aren't the only authentication that Peter offers to his crowd. We also have the Word of God. So Peter continues quoting Psalm 16 for the crowd. This is how he begins it. This is the premise, the preface he gives to his audience before he quotes David in Psalm 16. For David also said, referring to him, about him, about Jesus. You can look down at the text with me. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. For you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So let's take a moment to understand this passage. Who wrote it? What does it mean? Okay, very simply, Peter is quoting King David. In this psalm, if you look at verse 1, don't turn there now, you can if you like, Psalm 16, David is in the throes of turmoil, suffering, and he calls out to God in the very first, first verse, preserve me. He says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And David is certain that God hears him. He makes six assertions about God in relation to himself. Uh, I'm just going to blow them real quick. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. My flesh will dwell in hope. And then there's a parallel assertion here. It's pretty important in Acts chapter 2. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let your holy ones see corruption. Number five, you have made known to me the paths of life. And lastly, David's last assertion, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Why does Peter bring up this passage? We already know that it's to prove something. For David said concerning him. So one of our elders, Brian Tab, thank you, Dr. Tab, calls Peter's use of Psalm 16, quote, a biblical rationale for Christ's resurrection. So what is the logic of Peter's argument? Why is this section of the Psalms compelling for Pentecost hearers right now? Is Scripture... So let's, let's see here. Okay. Here's, my, here's, I think, the way Peter argues. If Scripture cannot be broken and is never wrong, then this Psalm, which is part of Scripture, cannot be broken and is never wrong. David did call out to God. God was always before David. God was at David's right hand. God did not abandon David's soul to Hades. God did not let his holy run see corruption. And yet, if you look at the very next verse, what does Peter say? I may say to you with confidence about the author of this text, 
that he both died and was buried right over there. So what about the prophecy? Is Scripture wrong? If the Scripture cannot be broken and is never wrong, what is going on here? So just a little backstory here. Uh, I saw Brian posted about his new book that's coming out this year, After Emmaus. And it was on the same scripture of text that I'm preaching this morning. And uh, so I called, I always send my manuscripts to Brian anyways to say, Brian, help me with this. And um, so I really commend that commentary. Like if you, if you wish Brian would sit with you for four or five hours explaining the text to you nicely and gently and, and with so much insight, buy his book and read it. It's so helpful. It's so helpful. This is what um, Brian Tab explains here. This royal grave proves Peter's point that David's body decayed, even though he wrote confidently that the Holy One would not see corruption. And thus, David's prophetic words must have implications beyond his own life. It's a prophecy. It's not just about him. David looked forward to something else. The death and resurrection of Jesus had been planned all along by God himself. It wasn't defeat as Cleopas had imagined. We hoped, we hoped he was the one, but now it's the third day. It was prophesied from the time of David that the Messiah would save Israel through death and resurrection. So, very last verse of our passage, Peter declares, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. This is the lens that Peter has now ground down, polished, and cut to fit into the frames to put on to the faces of his Jewish audience. He's saying, friends, you cannot understand Pentecost. You cannot understand the loud sound, the flame of fire, the foreign languages, unless you understand that it was God's plan all along. The Jewish leaders didn't win. Judas didn't win. It was God's plan all along that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and that God raised him up from the dead. Okay, so that is the meaning of our text this morning. Um, the Magic School Bus, we are now back in Minneapolis. And guess what? I snuck something back with me in my pocket. It is Peter's lens. So for the last part of our sermon, we're going to look through that lens to see what we can see. Um, I've heard from a few of you, uh, I think I, when I was here for the quarterly strategy meeting on Sunday, I haven't seen you at Bethlehem for a while. Uh, someone, <coughs> someone even asked me, are you still working at Bethlehem? <laughs> Not hard enough, apparently. Um, <laughs> you are right to ask. Um, in fact, I have not been here on a Sunday morning since the beginning of November. Um, and you know what? It's not only because I'm scared of getting the coronavirus. I don't want to get it, but that's not what's kept me away. Um, last time I was here, 
I experienced panic attack. Now, many of you know me well. I'm easygoing. I'm sociable. I love to be in a crowd. But last November, uh, I sat right up there with my family in worship, and my body, my body began to react. I felt anxious. I could feel my heart beating fast. I had to consciously slow down my breathing. Uh, I felt dizzy, I remember. I felt lightheaded. Um, I made my way down here. I greeted some of you right over here. But I, I had to leave. I had to get out of the building. You might ask me, what happened? What, what caused the panic attack? And I would tell you, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Um, maybe not seeing anyone all week and then coming into a room of hundreds of people could be a shock. Um, reading so much contentious debate online, it makes me feel sad about the, the divisions and the hatred that I see even between Christians. Um, it makes me worry, is that division creeping here into this body who I love so much? But also most deeply within myself, myself, I'm struggling with a problem that I, I can't quite put my finger on. Um, I think what started out as a sadness over a personal loss kind of morphed and changed over time into something that I have tried to label um, as like a lack of vision. I can't see the future. I can't see what's coming. Um, maybe an inability to look forward to anything in my life. And then most recently, that feeling has begun to turn into a nagging feeling that everything is coming to an end. That's just how I feel. I, I, I almost sense that that feeling pervades every moment of my life, and I can't seem to shake it. Now, before I continue with my sermon, I actually wrote this here in, in all caps bold. Disclaimer about self-care. <laughs> This is, this is really important, guys. You might wonder, are you okay? Should you even be standing right there right now? Like, do you need to lay down? Um, I, I just want, I want to tell you, the, the brotherhood of the downtown pastoral and elder team, they care for each other. They care for me. My brother Jared cares for me. He calls me. He texts me. He says, we're going to go for a walk today. And I'm able to share with him these things. This is not the first time I'm processing this. this is, you are not my therapy group. Right? I, I have brothers that are helping me. My wife is one of my dearest fighting partners. I don't fight with her. I fight with her. Against that, I don't fight with her. Not, not like that. Like, like this. Right? Um, you need that in your life. If you don't have that, this is what that is born from. You need community. I need community in my life. So how do you recover? How do I recover from this? How do you heal after experiencing a panic attack? How do you come back to church or go back to work? Or frankly, sometimes, 
How do you even just get out of bed when you're struggling with something like this? You look through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to try this out. Uh, Many of you may not know this, but I wear glasses. Thank you. Okay. And I wear them all the time. From the moment I knock them off my nightstand in the morning to the moment I forget to take them off my face at night, uh, I wear glasses. My entire life is lived looking through these lenses. In fact, I wear them so much that this, has, which is my natural state, this vision is actually unnatural to me now. This is what's natural. And I have them on my face so much that this is unnatural to you. You might not even recognize me without my glasses on. My phone doesn't recognize me without my glasses on. (laughs) Let that be a reminder to you of how often, how consistently, how permanently the, the lens of Christ must sit on your face. Everything you look at must be corrected and rightly focused by the lens of Christ so that you can understand what's happening in your life. As I study the passage this week, one of the most profound truths that Peter preached to his Pentecost audience, and really to me, was this. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered up. Man, I mean, we look at that word, it's like, oh, that's, that's nice, you know, maybe FedEx, UPS, delivered up. This is a terrifying word. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be betrayed by a friend. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend in your life? It hurts. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be unjustly arrested by the authorities. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be beaten and whipped. His body took a severe beating. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be mocked and publicly ridiculed. Have you ever experienced that? It hurts to be publicly ridiculed ridiculed a lot. Don't think for a moment that because Jesus was the Son of God that it didn't hurt him. He is every bit as human as you and as me. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to suffer an hours-long crucifixion None of us has ever experienced that. But most devastating is this. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be abandoned in his greatest hour of need by his own father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For what? 
for this. By his wounds, we have been healed. By his wounds, we have been healed. I'll say it again. By his wounds, that's the instrument, we have been healed. Jesus alone was crucified and abandoned by God so that none of us in Christ will ever experience that. You will never be abandoned by God. But we still suffer, don't we? I don't know what you're suffering from right now, this week, maybe this year, maybe this decade you've been suffering. But I know that many of you are asking for help and for healing. As I have pondered my own healing, asking for God to restore, restore my joy and hope, I'm going to be honest with you. I have grown tired. Tired of waiting, tired of asking, and sometimes I even fear that I've become accustomed to just a general malaise of deadness. But by his wounds, we have been healed. Uh, I'm running short on time. This is not on my manuscript, so I probably shouldn't go here, but I really want to say this. As I wrestled through this passage, the Lord helped me a lot. But I really wanted to ask a question. What is actually helpful to me? I don't want the Sunday school answer. I don't want to stand here and give you a solution that doesn't work because you have real problems that need a real solution. So when I say this next part, I mean it. I feel it. I live it. And I offer it to you as a real solution. This is not from the preaching book that says you should do this now. This is from the Lord helping me in my own life. What is healing? What would it look like for me to be healed? I think I've always defined or expected healing to be the removal of whatever it is that's hurting me. So I've asked God to remove, I don't even know what, deadness, numbness, remove lack of vision, restore former joys to my heart. When God delivered Jesus up, according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, the result was that Jesus died, crucified, pierced, buried, dead. So when the Pentecost audience heard the name of Jesus, maybe they thought to themselves, Jesus? You mean dead Jesus? His story is over. And maybe when you think about your own situation, you think to yourself, my story is over. So brothers and sisters, look again through the lens of Christ. God had yet another definite plan for Jesus. 
God had yet another definite plan with foreknowledge about him. A definite plan that he would raise him up from the dead because it was not possible for Jesus to stay dead. And now anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When we call on the Lord, he will raise us up. Our story is not over. Your story is not over. Because for a Christian, our story is never, ever, ever over. We can call out to God like David did. Preserve me, O God. David looked forward to the hope of a coming resurrection. The good news this morning is that Peter proclaims God did raise Jesus up. And of that, we are all witnesses. What is healing? Healing is not just the absence of bad things in your life. Healing is the presence of the resurrected Christ. The presence of Christ who hears you when you call to him. Healing is when Jesus comes to remain at your side, walking with you, listening to you, sympathizing with you, abiding with you, and abiding in you. So we say confidently with David, the Lord is before me. He is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with what? With your presence. To be with Jesus is our healing and our joy. Let me invite the worship team to come up. Uh, this is Communion Sunday. And I'm very, very excited to celebrate communion with all of you. To solemnly remember the death of Christ. At Bethlehem, we practice open communion. You don't have to be a member to take communion with us. But if, if you have not yet called in the name of Christ, before you open this, open this. Before you crack this open, crack this open and say, Redeem me. Save me. I call out to Jesus now. If you're not calling on Jesus, if you're not trusting in Jesus, please don't take this with us. Let me, let me pray. And what I'll do is say the words of institution and we will eat this together. Father, thank you for this amazing, definite plan and foreknowledge that you had about Jesus. This was not uh, a loss. This wasn't the Jewish leaders winning. This was you winning. You did this. And you meant it for our good. 
Jesus, by your death, you have made a way for us. By the slaying of your body, by the laying down of your body, you have opened up the curtain. You have made a way for us to go now to our God. And so we call on you, preserve us, and thank you for your death. Thank you for your body. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.